Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to oh, you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you show me, man. You know, I'm beginning to think the Premier League might just be the best league in the world, folks. You're welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with your hosts, Oma Tevit, Ken Early and Kieran Murphy. Sounds like you both agree this uh, might be something in the offing. A shadow of a doubt. Also. Yeah, absolutely. No question about that. Uh, genuinely great day of football yesterday. My biggest takeaway, since you ask, was... Um, hot takes. Yeah, my, my, hot, my hot take is Joe Hart really needs to work on those mind games. I don't know if you saw his interview, or I should say Harry Kane's interview after the game, so... Kane was asked, oh, there seemed to be a bit of a conversation there when, with Joe Hart, your England colleague, when you were about to take the penalty on him. And he said, yeah, yeah, he was fine. Just, yeah, oh, oh, could you reveal what was said? And when footballers are usually not supposed to reveal these things. But Harry Kane said, yeah, sure. Uh, basically, he said, well, I've seen you take loads of penalties and I know where you put it. You put it in the middle. So yeah. let's just get this over. Just You missed the penalty, I'll save it. We'll just, we'll just move on. Uh, so such as Joe Hart's ironclad self-belief that he had this chat with the striker then walks back to his goal convinced that this exchange would have had to plant a seed of doubt mm. in the mind of Harry Kane and the Kane would he'd just have to change his mind he'd have to stick it into one of the corners so there's a lovely photo today of Hart diving off to his right hand side but staring back into the middle of the goal where the ball <laughs> is sailing gently in I wonder how Joe Hart is on the yes-no game <laughs> um, yeah, he, he hasn't ever really been any good at that. I mean, he did save a penalty for Messi, didn't he? That was his probably his finest hour, mm. I guess. Me, did Messi... Yeah, Hart saved the penalty and Messi headed it and headed it wide. That was just last season. Mm. Um, but obviously, uh, Pirlo destroyed him. Again, with a penalty down the middle. Mm. Seems to be that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you do, Joe. You jump out of the way as hard as you can. <laughs> you might want to think about that, Joe. Your, um, your hot take, Ken. I read your Irish Times column this morning. It appears mm. to be that Tottenham Hotspur are the best team in the league. They are, yeah. They are. They're, the best, uh, they're the best balanced team. They're the best team kind of from front to back. I think maybe Arsenal have the best attacking players. but We're forgetting about Leicester all of a sudden, even though they're still top? Leicester are nowhere near being the best uh, right, it's just I'm just looking at the table here. And I know, still. I know. They say it never lies. Uh, no, that's, that's just at the end of the season, though, Ken. I thought there's a lot of mini lies between now and watching the, watching the Arsenal Leicester game. I thought this is you know 
the, when Leicester were actually leading, I thought, this is actually embarrassing for the Premier League if this team was to win. If the team that plays like this, this type of basic football, was to win this league, what what's it going to say about it? Certainly, Owen, I have to say, it would rather undermine undermine uh, the point with which you began <laughs> today's podcast. We need to get you and Richie Sadler back together again, Ken, because in your absence last week, Richie heard Alan Smith make a similar point mm. during the week that it would be an embarrassment for Arsenal if they were to lose to Leicester. Which Alan Smith? Alan Smith, the... Smudge. S- smudge, smudge. Smudge as opposed to... Former Leicester and Arsenal what, player. What, what's the Leeds, Alan Smith? No, he's yeah. Smudge as well. I think they might both be Smudge. <laughs> I think Smudge is just one of those things you call yeah. people who call Like Smith. Spud Murphy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, Richie, I th- I'm sure Richie is this, this, Ken, as he, as he often does. And he would say, Ken, that's a ridiculous statement. Leicester have, have, are legitimately at the top of the league. And one result, one win out of two against the two of the other best teams is pretty good going. It is. Well, they, they beat, um, they've, they've played all the, the, the other top four now. They've got two wins, two draws and two defeats in those matches. Both defeats to Arsenal uh, and they beat... Uh, each of City and Tottenham and, and drew the other game against them. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great um, it's a great set of results. I mean, the results have been great, but I don't think I think the results are better than the team. You see what I mean? No, you don't. As in the results, the results are, are surely the way that you rank the team. The the results I, I, I presume what you mean is the results are better than what you'd expect that group of players as individuals to be able to achieve. Yeah, and but, they're better but that, than but that team. That team is. <laughs> to use the biggest cliche, even bigger than the cliche I started off with, Ken, yeah. the team is more than the sum of its parts. It, it, undoubtedly, <laughs> the team is or has been more than the sum of its parts. But, you know, when you look at what Leicester have actually been doing, it's it's kind of, it's it's hard to explain, really. And the only way to explain it is that they've been really lucky. They've been really lucky. I mean, if you look at their, um, uh, I mean, okay, what do they, there are some unusual things about Leicester. They're top of the league. They have less of the ball than almost anyone in the league. I think they're 18th in possession. Okay, they don't want they don't want the ball. When they do have the ball, they pass it to a teammate less often than anyone else in the league. 69% it is there. So they can't they can't pass. They they don't keep the ball. They don't dominate games. I mean, if you look at all the other teams that are on top of the various leagues, they're all teams that pass the ball and tend to dominate possession. Leicester are exactly the opposite of that. Um Okay, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. That's absolutely. That's a legitimate way to, to play the game. But it's not as though this way of playing is is enabled. The one. The one thing that does tend to sort of predict whether a team is going to be, you know, finish high or low, is are they getting a lot of shots on target? Unless they don't really. Yeah, it's just, just, yeah, just that every time they get a shot on target, it seems to go in the net. But just because you're confounding, well, <laughs> some would say that that's, that's probably the most important part of the game. And just because they're confounding normal standards or the normal ways of measuring what a team should be doing to win all these games doesn't mean that they don't deserve to win them. While there, while there were 11 men on both teams yesterday, they looked every bit as good as Arsenal. Oh, yeah. No, they deserve. They, I'm not saying they don't deserve to have won the games that they've won. But I do think that they have been lucky. Uh, and I don't think that this. I don't think they can. I don't think they can win the league. Doing this, I mean, the you know, Man City are taking 
a lot more have a lot more shots in goal than Leicester. Leicester are bewilderingly ahead of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind but, of. But if if you're saying possession that they they lose the ball more often than every other team, I mean maybe that's the statistical. You know, you, do you know what I mean? It's it like it, the the number of shots is a statistic. The amount of misplaced passes is also a statistic. Mm. I mean they're very good on one statistical barometer, which is sticking the ball in the net. Yeah. Which is a far more 14, 14.6% of the time they have any kind of a shot, yeah, which is like, a ridiculously high. Um, I, I think they deserve a bit more respect from you, Ken, but I, 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 I feel he's, that he's they're still never, smart. Yeah, yeah, he's smart. What I'm saying is, he's smart from the 4 0 Man City prediction. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they, they, uh, they obviously. They didn't. The, the, the charge was, was halted. But we, have, we, we are going to talk a lot about Leicester, and it's not all going to be boring statistics. There are a few other things to get to as well. Let's do it now, so. Before we get to Leicester, let's clear up uh, this issue surrounding the Lionel Messi penalty. Uh, the Lionel Messi Luis Suarez penalty last night. Anyone who thinks that the Lionel Messi Luis Suarez penalty last night was disrespectful to the opposition, Celta Vigo, mm-hmm. is a plank. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't really understand what these people, uh, what these where these people are coming from. Is a goal celebration disrespectful to the opposition? Glorying in their humiliation, rubbing their noses in in the the sting of, of failure. I mean, you can't rub your nose in the sting. Although I imagine you did, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be it'd be awful. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I I just I find it difficult to fathom. But there was quite a few people sort of saying this the other night. I don't really see what's. What, do you think it was, it was taking the piss? Well, yeah, of course it's taking the piss. But you that's what so? you want to see, yeah. But say, the same way, a lot of remember so the, it's a nutmeg. Well, Ma- exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Leo Messi consistently nutmegging Man City that time. You know, it was like a nutmeg fest against Man City a season or two ago. Yeah. It was brilliant. It's great. I, I just because you're taking the piss a bit, I don't think should be seen as uh, any great crime. But th- I would think that other professional footballers might think it's disrespectful. And I say that on the basis of looking back at the famous Robert Pires, Thierry Henry mess up mm. when they tried to do something similar. And after that, Danny Mills, Danny Mills. is so pissed off. Yeah. He's he's given, I know he's he was an antagonistic player anyway, but he didn't need to be asked twice to have a go at somebody. But you could sense he, he, he was almost incredulous that they had tried this. And he's screaming at Pires and Pires is half apologetic. <laughs> it's just sort of, yeah, sorry, did, did, you know, we were just trying to score a goal. And then he, you could see him turning around, I presume having a go at Henri at that stage. It was Henri with Pires, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was, yeah. Pires, it was Pires' fault. <laughs> but it was just badly executed. He though. totally cocked it up. Yeah. But Danny, I mean, was Danny Mills in that instance any more any more angry or outraged than, say, Martin Keown was when Ruud van Nistelrooy smacked a penalty off the bar? Do you remember the one? The the last minute... Uh, uh, in the unbeaten season. Yeah. 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 And van Nistelrooy had a penalty, smacked it off the bar, and immediately Martin Keown was there in his face. He wasn't any more angry than that, but he did look a bit more... I think incredulous is the right way. Almost, there was something different to the reaction. There was more of a furrowed brow on Danny Mills. He was thinking, you could see him trying to work out what, why they tried to do this, why they tried to demean the Manchester City team. That's one of the reasons why Robert Pires is a much better player than Danny Mills. This does not compute. I think Danny Mills and Pires is like, well, you know, I mean, it's it's something we thought of. So it wouldn't necessarily occur to everyone. Uh, certainly wouldn't have occurred to you. 
Uh, pity we couldn't have made a better job of these it. These have been going back a long way. The 42.ie is a good article today where they've linked to a few of these videos. There was one as far back as 1957, Murph, scored by Rick Coppins for Belgium against Iceland. He, he actually took the penalty. Mm. The guy who he took, who, who the, he'd slightly overplayed it. So it suddenly became this one-on-one with the goalkeeper and the second, his teammate essentially had to stretch out to try to score which he didn't quite manage to do, but then the original penalty taker managed to knock it in. So they played a (laughs) 1-2. They kind of accidentally played a 1-2, which is what a lot of them try to do. That's what Johan Cruyff did with Jesper Olsen. Which is much riskier, because, I mean, there's a massive risk of an offside. It's kind of of nutty to do that. But, I mean, I I almost found it interesting that there weren't more of these. Mm. Well, there might be. I mean, these are the five they picked out. Yeah, but, you know, there's not too many other examples. I mean, the the Cruyff example is really famous. That's more than 30 years ago. The other ones in this article are Mike Treble, Treblecock for Plymouth Argyle against Man City. Uh, I mentioned Cruyff, Henri and Perez. And the other one was quite recent, actually. It was uh, um, Youssef Moutibi and Baghdad Bounadaj. Don't know if I have the pronunciation right. Right, Etoile du Sahel versus Marseille, 2015. Yeah, and so, and so that's a pre-season yeah. match, right? Yeah. In so, Tunisia, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of in, terms of in top-flight kind of European football, there, there have been very few people trying to do this and I suppose that maybe gives you an indication of why some people think it was disrespectful because it is a penalty is just a chance that most teams are not prepared to take to take any chances with you know they're like this penalty gives us a 78% chance to score we are gonna we're gonna absolutely have a crack at this no one's gonna try and waste the opportunity to score a penalty either the team needs the goal or the player wants the goal you know what I mean that you know no one's and, and, and nobody wants to look like a boob you know, which is what happened to, which is what Danny Mills is saying to Robert Perez. Um, you, sir, are a boob. You're a boob, <laughs> sir. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so maybe that that does show you. You know, with Barcelona, first of all, you've got a player um, in Lionel Messi who scored like 500 goals, or was going to be its 300 league goal or something. There was some landmark. He's got like goals, whatever. You know. He's like Gatsby now in terms of goals. Like he's he's like um, he's like a guy who's just got ice sculptures everywhere, and they melt every day. And he just makes more ice sculptures. Is that decadent? You know, he's like a really rich guy who spends a lot of money on ice sculptures. What's the big deal? You know, why, why shouldn't he spend his money? You know, he's got a penalty. He he doesn't need to actually kick that penalty towards the goal. So maybe there is a, an element of decadence there. Maybe it's like oh, and obviously the game was already decided. You know, Celtic are not coming back. I think it's four one at that stage. It's either three one or four one. Uh, but the game's the game's not in doubt, so it's not as though the downside risk is is small. Well, he was being praised for giving Suarez the hat trick rather than taking the goal himself. But it turns out that that wasn't actually Messi's plan at all. No, this wasn't supposed to be a Suarez goal or a Messi goal. No, it was supposed to be Neymar, and uh, Neymar was actually you could see uh, was started his run up from outside the D, where Suarez was just at the corner of the D and the and the um, penalty area, the mm-hmm. the eighteen yard line. And Neymar was outside that point, and and started running before, so as so as to arrive in the box with, already with a bit of speed. But Suarez was obviously closer to the point that the ball was going to end up at. Uh, whether he knew or not, I'm not sure. Although he he looked like a man who knew. He knew. He had seen them. Tra- he had seen them practice this in training and thought, I know what they're about to do here. <laughs> and, yeah, um, and Neymar did arrive. You know, and Neymar could have could have scored it if Suarez was there. And he said, yes, it was meant for me. But El Gordo was closer and scored. That's an example of Barcelona's banter. You see, Neymar calls Luis Suarez El Gordo, meaning the fat one. Mm. Uh, like he is the fat one at Barcelona. Um, Probably is compared to Neymar. 
he is yeah and, and I think it was he's grossly overweight Louis I think Suarez it, it might come back him. it might go to remember one of his first appearances for Barcelona after his ban or like a practice match mm. or something they were all like oh Luis Suarez he appears to have piled on the pounds <laughs> fatty Suarez waddled around <laughs> in his training game and, and maybe that it's stuck from them but anyway uh, I thought it was great and I'm sure most of the people who were there thought it was great and I'd say most of the Celta Vigo players would be like yeah I played in that game where Messi did that penalty you know what I mean? That will that will be how they think of it in Don't the, know what the, the golden years. The after dinner circuit is like, but uh, that's definitely one for for them. Yeah, I turned to Iago Aspas and I said, "You know what? <laughs> you know what, Iago? <laughs> uh, anyway, they've bloody well got to do this there, Iago." <laughs> so, uh, so where are we? Just staying briefly in Spain. Uh, there was a, there was a piece by Aidan O'Hara today where he has a couple of quotes from his point is about his articles about Gary Neville's difficult. Introductions, man. And Gary Neville managed to win a league game over the weekend. Yeah. So that was good. Uh, but Aidan O'Hara had <laughs> pointed out the less than positive remarks about Gary Neville from some of his kind of young manager colleagues, let's say. Hernan Crespo says, to watch a game from the TV, it's very different from the bench. I'm almost happy for Gary Neville's troubles at Valencia. I remember he was too harsh as a TV pundit. So Crespo was sticking the knife in. That's the Modena manager, uh, Hernan Crespo. Now, Sean Deitch, uh, the Burnley manager, um, was, was talking to the BBC. He says, I'm amazed he took this job. Some say brave. Some use other words. It's borderline for me. Uh, so basically he's saying, look, management is not a job that you can just come and do. You know, you need to, you need to have experience. Uh, and the big point that he makes is, when you're sitting with your box of tricks... On the TV, oh, the withering sarcasm of that phrase, a box of tricks. After the, after the event, looking at games, I think most people can give a good opinion. Now, he's very good at it. After the event, easy. When you're on the sideline and you have seconds to debate a decision or leave it alone, they come with experience, which he hasn't gotten. The pressure is completely different. Um, I mean, he says he's not anxious, but I think he'll wake up every morning thinking, wow, this is more difficult than I thought. Uh, so there you go. Um, there was definitely uh, a certain amount of hubris, I think, to think you can go into uh, the middle of a season in a foreign country where you don't speak the language. Into a big, complicated club like that. Yeah, and, and try and get the job done. But I, I, I take issue with Deitch there on the idea that, oh, it's easy. A anyone can take their box of tricks out and explain football after the event. Well, actually, not that many people can do it. Nobody has done it as well as Gary Neville possibly ever on English TV. So he actually, and that's what convinces people that he could be a good coach, that he clearly has good ideas, he can clearly analyse a game and he can effectively communicate. I'm not sure that I would be appearing as a pundit on a show saying that anyone can do as good a job as Gary Neville <laughs> uh, and and simultaneously slating him for being a bad manager. I, I, would, I would want to be pretty secure that I'm bringing you know, a high level of punditry to that particular <laughs> programme before I, I would open my mouth. I haven't seen Sean Dyche. We should ask Richie what he's like as a pundit. I think um, Richie obviously is a, knows Sean, Sean Dyche from, from back in the day. But uh, just on, on the subject of Neville, actually, before we move on, because there is a point out of that, uh, out of what Sean Dyche was saying, but uh, Jamie Carragher also did, did a, one of those small talk interviews with Barry Glendening where he mentions Neville. He says, uh, did Barry Glendening did a feature with them like the Sky guys when Neville was still there a while back. Um, do you miss having around the Sky studio? He says, oh, of course, although it's nice to have a bit of peace, says Jamie Carragher. Everyone knows what he's like, running around at 100 miles an hour, but you do miss laughing at him. We're in there all day on Mondays. He'd always make me laugh, telling me what he's up to, because he always has his fingers in so many pies. Something funny would inevitably come up during the day. <laughs> He'd be worrying about something not going right and always on edge. 
it was highly entertaining. <laughs> you can just imagine Neville. What his state of mind must now be like. Oh. Now that he actually does have something to worry about uh, as the manager of Valencia. <clears throat> but anyway, where are we? Hopefully improved anyway with the win. But the point we were coming to there was Sean Dyche uh, says it's easy after the event. That's what Giovanni Trapattoni always used to say. Your jobs, your jobs is easy. You know, pointing at the journalist. My job, my job is extremely difficult, uh, he would say. Uh, because I have to make the decision, whereas you only have to talk about it afterwards, after the fact. And I said, that's why I feel a bit guilty talking about Claudio Ranieri in this way. But, like, seriously, how, how can Claudio Ranieri live with himself after, you know, sabotaging Leicester's title charge? Hang on, is this you or Trapattoni speaking? <clears throat> that's me. Oh, this is, this is Ken's speaking. No, Trapattoni hasn't accused uh, Claudio Ranieri of, of throwing it away. But, you know, I, th I just thought that at the moment, uh, at the kind of really decisive moment that came, Simpsons just sent off, okay, I'm going to have to change something here. What do I do? I found it incredible that Riyad Maris was the player who came off. It was a, a little bit like, do you remember just a few weeks ago, Arsene Wenger did something vaguely similar when he took off Giroud. Oh, yeah. Took off Giroud against Chelsea um, when uh, Mertesacker was gone. And you could see the, the effect. Well, what was important, Wenger's justification for it afterwards was basically, I imagine, the same as what Ranieri's would have been in his own head. You know, we... Uh, well, maybe m m slightly different, actually. Slightly different, because in Arsenal's case, it was still nil nil. was Ranieri was protecting a lead. So he was probably thinking, you know, Mares, lovely player and all, is he the kind of guy you'd want in the trenches? You know? Mm -hmm. It looks like the, the remainder of this game is trench warfare. Is Riyad Mares a trench warfare kind of guy? He decided no. Uh, I'll leave Vardy there. I've got this <clears throat> his speed. Wenger said, "Oh, you know, we thought we'd need speed to counterattack. We, you know, we need we need speed to do the transitions, and that uh, isn't really Giroud's strong point." Um, but you could see the effect that it had in the stadium. You could see the effect that it had. I think on the other Arsenal players, that everyone was. I mean, Giroud couldn't believe it. The other Arsenal players probably were relieved it wasn't them. But the whole stadium was was just appalled. What are you doing? You, you know. Uh, I thought Ranieri's case was a much more clear-cut case of this. This Maris has been the most important attacking player, more so, I think, than... Well, you know, it's, it's difficult to say more so than Vardy. But, you know, he's been the main supplier to Vardy. He's been the guy who's repeatedly come up with these great moments. Yeah. Um, he's the best counter-attacking link player. If, you, if you've now got to play with nine outfield players, can you get away with seven basically defensive players and two attackers, or do you need to go 8-1? Ranieri decided he needed it 8-1, and I think that was too much, because what that did was it handed over the initiative to Arsenal. They said, okay, we only need to worry about Jamie Vardy now. That means we need two men to, you know, to watch Jamie Vardy. Um, if Mahrez had been on the field, then they would have had to, they, they would have needed four men. Mm. You know, uh, it's because Mahrez is capable not only of I mean, you can combine with Vardy, but also is much better in, in individually in terms of beating men individually. He's very difficult to stop. And you saw, like, just a, a few minutes before the goal, he was taken down by Nacho Monreal. It should have been a penalty. It was more of a penalty, I thought, than the Vardy one. Uh, which the Vardy, Vardy, we, we keep talking about Bobby Perez penalties today. But remember, Robert Perez's famous one against Portsmouth where he showed everybody how to win a penalty the way that Jamie Vardy did the other day. You know, just all you need to do is really run into the guy. Yeah. I, I find it really inconsistent, actually, and annoying. Um, <clears throat> all of these 
uh, decisions about penalties. I mean, there was another handball in that, in this game. You know, Kante had a handball uh, where the ball was crossed and hit Kante in the arm. His arm is outstretched in, in what we call a natural position. What does a natural, you know, what's the difference between a natural and unnatural position? Um, the, the handball is not given. I mean, the, there was a handball in the later game given against Sterling for much less of a handball, in my opinion. But Vardy's one. Vardy ran into Nacho, Nacho Monreal. Now, the argument for not giving the handball against Kante is, well, the ball co- comes at him from so... It covers such a short distance. It's, it's, it, it takes such a short time to get there. How can he react? Well, the same argument is made about Vardy. When Jamie Vardy hurls himself at you from two yards away, how are you going to get out of the way? Well, you're not going to stick your leg out in the first place. You're the making, legs you're, in a natural position on ma- the ground. But you're making, a, you're making it out as though Vardy went by him and uh, Monreal stood there like a statue and didn't just didn't make a move and realised he was beaten and, and put the arms up and didn't go for the player. When actually what he did was he committed himself. It was a poor touch, as Jamie Carragher, I think, pointed out by Vardy. Vardy. He actually put, pushed it too far ahead of himself which gave Monreal the I think I can get, oh. inkling that I can get this. So he stuck his foot out. Yeah, okay, Vardy ran into him, but that's what players have been doing for mm. 10 to 20 years, and even in the Premier League for a good 5 to 10 years. So you, that's, that's what's going to happen. I, I, I think that actually is a penalty. Yeah, well, he got the, he got the penalty, he scored it, but, you know, I, I, think, I think if that's a penalty, the Kante one should also be a penalty. Uh, you know, he, he stopped the ball from, he stopped a clear advantage to Arsenal with using his hand. I don't see how, oh, I didn't have time to react. You did have time to react, you know? You, um, Again, you didn't have to put your arm there, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, if, if the, this time thing, I don't, I don't understand. Defenders give away penalties because they don't have time to react all the time. Uh, I don't see why it should be different with a handball. But anyway, so, so here we are criticising Ranieri, who's, who's taken Leicester to the top of the league. Um, well, here you are criticising him, Ken. I'm, we're going to have a chat to... Who are we going to talk about this? Jonathan Wilson? No, we're going to talk to Jack Pitbrook, aren't we, about Leicester? Yeah, but Ranieri's made another interesting call, uh, which is that he, he announced yesterday that all the Leicester players could go off on holidays for a week. Woo! And he's... <laughs> no, <laughs> party time! It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll say, see you back here next Monday. Um, you know, you deserve it. You've, you've done great. Where are they going to go? You know, people are like, oh, I'll probably Dubai or whatever, you know, footballers, Las Vegas, who knows, you know. Um, and I thought, is, are you seriously going to do this? This is like, why Why are Leicester doing this? I mean, is the, is the opportunity to sort of train not worth taking at this point? Or even to go on a team holiday. A team holiday, exactly. They're trained together. Ranieri's heading back to Italy <laughs> and the boys are all heading to Dubai. But this is the, these are the kinds of decisions that a manager has to make. Right. So Ranieri's the one who actually has to make the decision. We just kind of are standing here going, oh, are you sure that's the right decision? He's got to make it. So he, so the decision is between, okay, obviously physical rest is important at this at this point of the season that's that's fair enough you saw the state of Vardy in the last half hour of the game he was barely able to move you know uh, we need you know physical rest is important what's the best way to do that should we do a bit of low intensity training maybe go to the Manga or one of these types of places or should I just give them all a holiday and allow them to decompress what if maybe the training is going to create a pressure cooker effect everybody sitting around brooding you know, it was a big gap to the next games, two weeks to the next game. Do we really need to do that? Would it not be better just to let them all away? Or if I let them all away like that, does that risk kind of diffusing, uh, allowing this kind of spirit to diffuse a little bit? Everyone comes back a little bit confused and sort of trying to trying to remember exactly what, what we were all doing together. You know, this is this is what's difficult about it. Ranieri's obviously just gone for option B. We don't know. I mean, 
he thinks maybe that maybe it's important to reduce the pressure on Leicester at this point. They and I was I was wondering about this how this pressure is going to affect them. It doesn't seem to have affected them yet at all because the, I mean the performance against Arsenal did not to me seem in any way nervous or below the standard of what they've been doing. Jimmy Carragher said they played like champions yeah. in a game that they lost. And I can actually see what he meant in that there was no lack of conviction there. I mean, they got undone by sending off, really. You know, Mares doesn't get taken off if Simpson doesn't get sent off. Yeah. Uh, and even at that, you know, Vasilevsky, who wouldn't have been on the pitch if, yeah. if it wasn't for the sending off, makes a ridiculous tackle that could have been a red card. <laughs> it really was. It was like Bar- it was Boris Johnson. It, it was, was Boris Johnson against <laughs> that guy. What are you doing? Seriously, in that position, oh. But the, the interesting thing about this is when you when you actually consider what Leicester have been through, they've been in a much worse situation than this with a lot more pressure this time last year. So if you remember what was happening, I think maybe the pressure got to Ranieri a little bit and he reverted to his Italian, you know, oh, take off my best player. I'll sacrifice my best player to the gods and maybe the gods will smile on this in return. It doesn't work like that. But he, uh, I mean, uh, what was happening this time last year? Nigel Pearson, let's say, was suffering a far bigger meltdown. Told his supporter, told his supporter to f off and die. Got banned. Uh, got into a row with Gary Lineker. I pay my taxes. Uh, choked James MacArthur as he was lying on the ground that time. Mm. Uh, there was the Asked someone if he was a an ostrich. Of, Paul Rowan. Yeah, a couple of incidents with journalists. Paul Rowan, you know, you're a prick. Or <laughs> prick waxing and waning my arse, and uh, and the whole are are you flexible enough? <laughs> I very much doubt that. <laughs> I am. Are you? I, I am. Are you flexible enough? So that was. I mean, that was a massive kind of that showed the pressure that he was under at the time. Leicester, the players were going through that, and they emerged from it on a storming run. What is it? Twenty-two out of twenty-seven points or something like that. They were still bottom with like nine games to go and they won nearly all their matches and finished, you know, in mid table. That was a much more difficult situation than the one they're in right now. I mean, the diff- the difference now is that like, you know, the, the whole world wants to give them credit for everything. So Jamie Vardy's and, you know, and Golo Kante and Mares are all kind of stars. Even like the backroom staff are now becoming household names, you know, like, whoa, what a job Steve Walsh has done. You know what I mean? Steve, Steve bloody Walsh has done an amazing job there. You know, what about Ben Rigglesworth? <laughs> what about okay, B- I'm not entirely sure that Ben uh, Rigglesworth is a major topic of conversation around the water the, cooler, the, the, <laughs> the water coolers of the of Great Britain and what, Ireland. What about Ben Rigglesworth going, going to Arsenal? They got the, they took the wrong man, says Gary Lineker. They took they took the wrong man, but 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 okay, young. Okay, maybe I'm behind the behind the curve on Ben Rigglesworth. I'm prepared to hold my hands up. On young that. young man, Ben Rigglesworth. You don't turn down an opportunity like that. When Arsenal come calling, you know, when, when you've got the opportunity to work in the Arsenal front office, you just don't turn down those kind of opportunities. Now, this wasn't happening last year, you know, in terms of the, the, the increased profile and attention. So everyone feels as though they're under the gaze of the world. So far, though, they look as though they've been able to handle it. I remember we were talking about how maybe they're not going to be as good against teams that give them more respect, you know. That may yet prove to be true. But so far, the record against the bottom half teams, which is mainly what they've got, yep. you know, eight eight of their last twelve games are against teams in the bottom half. They've won, you know, three quarters of those games and haven't lost any. Talk to me about Arsenal and Arsene Wenger. Well, obviously, this is a big win for Arsenal and a great moment for Welbeck. Um, Wenger was talking afterwards about um, mental strength and all this kind of stuff. Uh, 
which I suppose he's going to do in that situation. I didn't really think it was. I didn't think they looked that strong mentally. I mean, they looked really panicked. They didn't look. They looked like they were headless chickens. Uh, they did score a nice goal. The first goal was a really, really good goal, and uh, and ultimately they they won a game that I think they should have won. They were a much better team than Leicester. I mean, when they were more relaxed earlier in the season, they trashed Leicester out of sight. You know, before everyone got worried. Oh my, Leicester are kind of scary. You know, like an elephant being afraid of a mouse. That's what it was. Arsenal just stepped on the mouse last time, five two. This time it was it was more nervous. Um, but I actually thought the more interesting thing from Arsene Wenger was uh, what he was saying before the game, in the lead up to the game, um, about the whole ticket price situation. You know, that's obviously been a thing that's been going on last week. Uh, the Liverpool fans had protested, and ultimately the club said, "Okay, well, let's have a let's have another look at this. Maybe that was a bad idea." Um, Arsene Wenger was talking some high octane nonsense uh, about this issue. Now he obviously is the manager of the club that famously is the most expensive in the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> Arsenal is just uh, obviously it should be the most expensive place in the world to watch your football. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but here, here he is suddenly, like um, conjuring this romantic, hazy vision of well, the present. But, you know, it's kind of connecting the past to the present. You want everybody there when the game starts, says Arsene Wenger. Honestly sounding as though he should be doing the voiceover on some corny, like, you know, some corny ad by the tourist board or something. For me, the game is a joy and everyone has to be part of it. You can protest before and after, but during the game, you want everyone to be there. It's a moment of happiness in your life. Life is not every day fantastic. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes it's difficult for many people. Football is a moment of happiness in your life, so don't miss it. But, the, but okay, so fair enough. That's, you know, just he's spinning some old bullshit in that in a press conference. He's got to say something. Um, but he, he goes on to say something a bit more pernicious, mm-hmm. which is, I see fans as supporters. Somewhere, I think they feel like when you're at, when you're at home and you use electricity, you have no choice. They go to the club, they have no choice. It's a little bit like their faith. Football started in the street with people building the club and coming from local places. You want people who live around the stadium to be capable of going to the game. That's all very well, but that's an argument for cutting ticket prices, not defending the high ones that you've got. You know what I mean? It's If, if this is the case, then what's he saying? You know, Arsenal are entitled to exact a tithe from the supporters. This is like their religion, so Arsenal are like a kind of a corrupt... Pope uh, demanding. What, what about all these supporters that aren't in the ground? Shouldn't we be charging them as well? I mean, for all of the happiness we're giving them. <laughs> you know, if you're watch, if you're an Arsenal fan watching it on TV as well as your Sky Sports subscription, you should also, to be fair, throw in a few quid in the well, in the pot for for Arsenal. Well, as well, to be fair, you already are. You know, that's 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 actually where most of the money is coming from these days, from those guys sitting at home. But I I don't know. I mean, if he's going to start talking about it as a faith. Then he'd want to be careful because even faiths, you know, aren't as aren't as robust maybe no. as they have previously been. Every so often you get a Martin Luther, you know. Every so often someone comes along and says, "Well, oh, it seems to me like the Pope is uh, sitting in a big gold throne in a big gold palace surrounded by priceless works of art and jewelry." Was this really the message of Jesus, or should we maybe <laughs> should we maybe look again at what uh, what this was all supposed to be about? So. You know, what I'm saying is don't rely too much on uh, the faith always forcing people to, to pay these kind of prices. That's it for Kennedy's Report on Sport. He's just a crying big baby. 
but you cannot call it a player a baby. And we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call a player a baby. We haven't talked much yet about Spurs uh, and their well, brilliant victory over Man City yesterday in the later game. Jonathan Wilson was watching this one. Jonathan, there's a consensus building, and I think Ken subscribes to this view that Spurs are now the best team in the league. Do you think so? I think probably that is true, yeah. I mean, I don't know, it's been such a strange season that every time you say something definitive like that, within a fortnight, everything's changed. But, I mean, I didn't think Leicester played badly in losing at Arsenal, so I don't think there's any reason for them to be particularly downbeat. Uh, and I guess you, you look at the the iffiness of the penalty that got you know, got Spurs up and running yesterday. But notwithstanding that, they were the better side. They looked much more lively, much more energetic than City. I think they probably just deserved to win that game. Uh, and given that yeah, you still have all the usual doubts about Arsenal, then by process of elimination, yeah, that, that leaves Spurs probably as the title favourite, which seems a really, really weird thing to say. Why do you think it is that they have that kind of energy when this is the smallest squad in the league and they're still involved in the Cup and the Europa League? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess the, 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 there's two things there. One is, will they still have the energy when the Europa League restarts? Um, I mean, I, you know, I guess from their point of view, this has been sort of the last month or so has been relatively quiet given what they can expect from now. I mean, maybe they'll lose to Fiorentina and, and, and you know, they'll suddenly get time. Um, but I, I think, I mean, I remember Brad Friedel was talking about this back in uh, back in August, I think it was, when I was talking to him about it. And he was saying that he'd never worked with anybody who does as much conditioning work as Pochettino does. And he was saying... Yeah, certainly at that stage of the season, and maybe it's diminished now. They would spend you know, an, an hour on the training field every day just doing conditioning, um, which I mean, I, I think historically Pochettino sides have have looked fitter than other teams in the league. I think that was true when he was at Southampton, up until sort of April time when there, there has been a slight dip. Uh, I think if you actually look at the points per game, uh, though, that dip has been less and less as time's gone by, as if he's sort of learning how to manage that. So, I mean, I think Pochettino is, is very, very good at, at getting the conditioning right. Um, I guess you have to give credit to, to the medical staff that, that they haven't had major injuries. And I think you know, muscle injuries seem to be the, the key to this. Some clubs get hundreds of them, some clubs don't get any. And there may be an element of coincidence, but I, I suspect that's to do with the conditioning work you do. And Spurs and Leicester, actually, have, have clearly got that right. Yeah, Spurs don't, don't have any at the moment. I think it's just a couple of knee injuries is all they've got. But, but did you see any signs? I mean, I know you've seen Harry Kane play a few times this season, uh, throughout the season, that he's maybe beginning to feel the effects a little bit. Um, I mean, I don't think it was his best game yesterday. I didn't see anything to be particularly concerned about. Um, 
I, you know, I, I guess the encouraging thing for Spurs is that they they won without him playing particularly well. Uh, you know, took his penalty very very well. I mean, it doesn't really show a huge amount, but it shows that sort of mentally he's still sharp and alert and and, and still has that confidence. So I mean, you know, in terms of the makeup of the squad, that's obviously the weakness. That if if anything did happen to Kane. You wonder whether they would be able to replace him. I know Pochettino said that that Son can can play at centre forward, and, and maybe that is true. Lamella, I guess, could probably play as a false nine. So there's a couple of of options there. But yeah, if 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 Kane is feeling tired, if if he uh, if he were to get injured, that clearly would be a big problem. And you suspect because of that, he he won't play in the Europa League. It seems to be. I mean, just about everybody is giving all the praise to Pochettino, which is what happens in these cases. Should, should there be any praise for the Spurs board and even for previous managers? Is this, is this a project that actually dates back to the hiring of Villas Boas, for example? Uh, uh, that Pochettino is benefiting somewhat from the fruits of, of those labours? You think? Um, possibly there's an element of that. I, mean, I think one of the reasons Pochettino gets so much praise is because he did the same thing in Southampton. You know, this is not the only environment which he's he's made a team better. Um, and you know, he, I think he took Southampton pretty much as far as Southampton could go, and now he's taking Spurs to heights they haven't reached for for a long, long time. But yeah, I, I think, I mean, yeah, the, the incredible fact about Spurs is they've made a profit on transfers over the last yeah. four years. Which um, I mean, I'm not even sure that's true of any other team in the Premier League, but it's certainly not true of any other team in the top half dozen of the Premier League. So I know a lot of Spurs fans get very frustrated with Daniel Levy. I think he's he's renowned among club chairman has been quite difficult to deal with that he's you know he's always haggling over the last pennies but you know it, it does seem to work um you know i guess the question you always ask is could they have done even more even earlier if they hadn't had this series of, of years when their season almost hasn't started till september because they've been waiting till till august 31st to get the transfer window out of the way and find out exactly what what they've got to work with so, but yeah, as things stand at the moment, I think you've got to say that what Levy's done has been very, very impressive. Uh, I guess the next challenge for him is is how he's able to continue that with the move to the new stadium, which obviously was something that, that affected Arsenal. And if you manage the finance of that as well, then then yeah, you've got to give him enormous amounts of credit. Yeah, because with with the it's incredibly impressive, as you say, that Pochettino has done this while actually making money. And if not for the stadium move, you'd be thinking, well, hang on, this is the time to really loosen the purse strings. Levy has to trust Pochettino now after what he's done, and he could win in the league title this year. So it, ordinarily it would be the summer maybe to to open those purse strings a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I still sort of think that's that's probably true that that they, if you know, if they really want to have a crack at the Champions League next season, you know, assuming they're in it, they, then they probably still do need two or three, you know, high class players. But maybe that's just not Pochettino's way. I mean, you know, a lot's been written, and you know, rightly so, about the influence that Bielsa's had over Pochettino. Bielsa's way was never to bring in big names. It was it was to work with young players to get them working to. Uh, yeah, to, to his method. Um, I mean, there's something that there's a certain irony here that, that, that the, the manager who sort of pioneered that style of football, Van Hal, is watching another manager take his template and and, and make it work. Um, and Van Hal's always said that you know, young players are just more biddable. You can persuade them to do things you can't persuade seasoned players to do. And so maybe yeah, you know, the fact that people like Eric Dyer and Deli Ali have done so well this season, maybe that that's. Uh, a warning, not just to Tottenham, but a warning that, that bringing in season players doesn't necessarily help the, the team ethic as a whole. Um, there was a piece by Jonathan Liu about Tottenham over the weekend where he point, he, he talks about the video that they play at White Hart Lane um, before, before every match, and it, and it says, and the voiceover says something like, uh, we're about the glory of the game, 
We're about playing with style, the curve of the ball, the billow of the net, the beating of the trap, the picking lock. We are Ginola, Greaves, Klinsman. We are the collective gasp, the intake of breath, the flick, the trick, the 30-yard free kick. Um, so you can see, you know, what Spurs are going for there. And this Pochettino team is completely unlike any of that. They're, they're like a, a team of, they're completely a sort of a roundhead team of killer uh, Terminator cyborgs uh, united by uh, one collective purpose and they're not really into, interested in anything uh, that Spurs historically have, have liked to think they're about <laughs> which is all <laughs> completely true I mean I think that video is excruciatingly embarrassing I mean I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm really glad that someone don't do that um, I, I can't believe if you're a Spurs fan you watch that and sort of think Oh yeah, that that makes me feel warm inside. I mean, even if even if it does stir something, you must be thinking. Oh, you know, the only thing you can think is, God, it used to be better than it is now. Um, but presumably, Spurs fans aren't going to start chanting that they want their Tottenham back now. I mean, you know, winning sort of conquers all all, all qualms about style. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm always slightly sceptical of this idea that clubs have an innate style. And you've got to play that philosophy. I, I think that's. Yeah, you know, when things are going wrong, that that's sort of the, the the moral stick you take up. But I'm pretty sure most Spurs fans now uh, would would rather have this side than you know the flaky side they had under Ozzy Ardiles or something like that. So uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I mean the, the Spurs aren't the only team who play videos like that. I mean, West Brom have got an extraordinary one with um, uh, I think it's Elgar backing it, which is a really strange thing, because Elgar was famously a Wolves fan. You're the only composer you know who you supported. Um, and, and weirdly, it's, it's you know, the, the, the rivals team you support who uses music. But those, those videos, I think, are, are very, very weird things. I'm, I'm not really... Because you kind of think the people they'd appeal to are the people who don't go to games, which I, yeah, I, I find them very, very strange. But, um, but yeah, I can't believe Spurs fans would rather play pretty losing football than the effective football playing them. It's not even it's, you know, it's not dull football that they're playing them. It's just they've got a good defense. Yeah, they're they're not long balls, Johnson. They're long passes, right? You sound, you you remind me of Sam Allardyce now uh, when he was complaining about the West Ham way, uh, and he had all this stuff about you know what is this West Ham way they talk about. You were also at Sunderland to see him uh, defeat Leuven Hall's Manchester United. Uh, how is he adapting to the Sunderland way? Well, I mean, he he saw he you know, he he did play for Sunderland. You know, he um, I think he he sort of. You know, I mean, the, the comparison you make is, is to when he was at Newcastle, when he never seemed a happy fit. That Newcastle fans, like West Ham fans, always thought he doesn't fit our our self image. I don't think Sunderland fans have ever, ever had any qualms about that. They, although Allardyce, I think was only at the club for about eighteen months. You know, he sort of feels like an old Sunderland player coming back, uh, which is helped by the fact he did play in, in one of the very, at the time very rare victories over Newcastle back in nineteen eighty eighty one. Um, but I, I think if you look at the work he's done in the transfer market, it's it's been yeah, seemingly very very good that he's he's cleared some of the wage bill. He's he's um, perhaps cleared a couple of. Um, I mean, in, in one case, not really through his own doing, but he's cleared out a couple of the players who perhaps lacked a little professionalism. Um, and the players he's brought in, I mean, four of them started on Saturday. Kirkhoff went off early with a hamstring injury, but he played very well against Manchester City. And the other three were all absolutely instrumental in that victory. Damon and Doy, his work rate and movement on the right, and then the centre-forward was very, very good. Robbie Kasri's movement down the left, his, his interchanges with Patrick Van Arnholt were excellent. And he took, you know, took the, scored the free kick for, for the first goal, took the corner and set the second. And, and Lamine Gone, I thought, was... 
one of the best centre-back displays I've seen from a Sunderland player in years. I, I thought he was sensational. I mean, he's huge. He's good on the ball. Um, yeah, he does tricks in the opponent's box. He scores headers. And then Allardyce afterwards, I mean, Sam Allardyce after a big win is always hilarious because he's so smug. But I, I think it's slightly sort of he, he plays up to it. But he, he actually said, oh, yeah, Coney reminds me of me at that age. There's no way in the world Sam Allardyce was, was twisting inside opposing centre-backs in the opposition box. He, he might have been bulleting in headers like that. But um, I think Lamine Coney's a pretty different centre-back to Sam Allardyce. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think... I was actually just talking to someone on Friday night, and he he was saying, "Who's the last cult player that Sunderland have had? Uh, yeah, the, the player that fans absolutely adore." And there's maybe an argument for Naren Nosworthy, which is yeah shameful in itself, but probably Julio Arca. But I think Lamincone already there's signs that he's a player that fans are really going to get behind, and that's something that you know Sunderland have bought 68 players in the last five years. When you have that kind of throughput, you lose that emotional bond between fans and players. And Kone, possibly, you know, the early signs are he could be somebody who, who rebuilds those bridges. What about uh, Louis van Gaal and his, the bridges that he has with Manchester United, which are um, on the verge of being burned, I guess? I mean, Mark Ogden did a, a piece with him on Friday in the Independent. This is the first sort of, uh, I guess, Featurey, soft focus type interview that I'd seen with Van Hal for a while. He came across very well in it, but the uh, the results are the same, and the debate this Monday morning is the same uh, whether or not he's going to get to see out his contract. Do you reckon he will, or see out this season? I think he'll probably get to the end of the season, but I, I can't really see it going beyond that. Um, I mean, if they get rid of him before the end of the season, what's the alternative? Are you in Ryan Giggs as an interim manager. I mean, they tried that once before and it didn't really help. Well, tell Jose if you really want this job, Jose, you can come and start now, <laughs> come in, you know. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose he could do that. I don't really see who, who benefits from that unless they really thought they had a chance of getting in the top four. But I mean, that's looking at an increasingly distant prospect. I, I suppose they could beat City in the derby and then there'd only be, what, three points behind and then, then there is a chance. Um, so, so I suppose possibly they, they might be clinging to that. But I mean, Van Gaal admitted on Saturday that United's best chance of qualifying the Champions League now is to, is to win the Europa League, which to be saying that you know, in the middle of February, I, th- I think is a pretty pretty damning indictment, not just of how, how bad things are, but sort of the, the lack of hope for improvement. Well, the bookies don't, don't agree with them at all there, by the way, because um, I think United are 12-1 to 1 to win the Europa League and 5-1 to 1 to finish in the, in the top four. So um, it's a bit defeatist, really, from Lee Van Gaal. I think you see this pattern with Van Gaal. I, I think it's quite an interesting... Yeah, psychological uh, insight that I, it was the same when they lost to Southampton when, when, when was that two or three weeks ago it was, it was a similar thing that he was incredibly downbeat after the game and sort of I mean maybe it's even a tactic because it's, it's quite difficult for journalists to be hostile to a manager who's sort of just sort of going yeah we're, we're rubbish what can I do <laughs> yeah it's true um, yeah. and, and you, you sort of saw the hostility after the draw at Chelsea that he, he there was a couple of journalists he really had a go at for, for suggesting that Mourinho might be on the verge of taking over. But when his team's lost and when they've played badly, it really seems to hit him hard. He really seems sort of devastated by it. And what I thought what was intriguing on Saturday was both he and Rooney used the same phrase about the lack of aggression, that, that you know, his side had, had, had been less aggressive than Sunderland. And he didn't mean that in the sense that you know, Sunderland went over the top. or, or you know, It wasn't sort of Wenger complaining about Stoke or something. It, it was just sort of saying you know, they wanted it more than us. And that's a pretty damning thing for a manager to say, to admit his team didn't really fancy it. And it was, you know, it, it should be said, it was a horrible day. It was, a, it was really cold, biting wind, hail showers. But you sort of could see 
a couple of United, I mean, Memphis Depay particularly when he came for bench, but a couple, he wasn't the only one. A couple of United players who really didn't seem to fancy a physical battle in those conditions. So, and, and that, that's a you know that's a really worrying thing. If the players have sort of lost heart and lost faith, then I, I think his defeatism is is well founded. Okay, Jonathan, great stuff. Thanks, Emil. Cheers. Thanks. Yeah, on that interview I mentioned there with Louis Van Hal in the Independent in the UK, he talks. The, I mentioned the soft focus part of it. There's a lot in the early stages where he's talking about, about the fact that he likes to think of himself as a human being first. You know, somebody who interacts well with people at the club. And he says that when he ultimately when he leaves, that he, he'd like to think that that's how he's remembered at Old Trafford. Now he says that kind of approach can bug the players sometimes, uh, but that he is transparent and he feels that that's uh, that that's pretty clear. The only time that the claws really come out was when he was asked about Paul Scholes and his boring football, repeated boring. refrain of boring football. What Scholes is thinking, he has to think it. Every human being can give his opinion. I don't bother about that. I think it is good. But my problem is when you create an atmosphere, a very negative atmosphere for somebody, so maybe he should be more positive. Now it's put to him by Mark Ogden, the interviewer, maybe you know, have a word with your right-hand man there. Giggsy, he could possibly throw in a word with Skulls. So what was the response to that? No, I don't think I, that I have to give Ryan Giggs stress in his friendship with Skulls. I've managed all of my what? career. I've managed all of my career, so it would not be good or honest of me to ask Ryan to say something. Oh, my God. What's wrong with that? Well, here's one of the differences between Louis van Gaal and a certain former Manchester United manager uh, whose name adorns one of the stands. They're, they're putting the, the Bobby Charlton's name up on the, on the other stand. Was it you were saying, Carol? This is the the one that Jose Mourinho will be sitting. <laughs> yeah. Bobby Charlton. That's the side sign. But yeah, this is you know. Say if Alex Ferguson was in this position, mm-hmm. do you think he'd be happy to put up with it? His assistant is friends with a well-known former player. TV pundit who keeps slamming the team. Ferguson might have a word. I think he might. I honestly think he might. Uh, you know, there might there might be he might seek to use the connections mm. that exist to try to influence the outcome of the situation. He's not just going to leave it up to other people. Yeah. I do, I, I, take yeah, control. I do love the way that Ryan Giggs would just be like, "Well, it's got nothing to do with me." You know, Scolzi can say what he likes because, I mean, you know, I've, Van Hal's the manager. I mean, I've, I don't have any influence right here at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, would you not just on a personal level? I mean, I don't know why Louis Van Hal would have to feel that he has to say something to Ryan Giggs. It's like, you know, Giggsy, we are paying you a bit of money to hang around here. You know, <laughs> like this should, you know, be a problem for you, how badly we're playing and how schools are slagging you off. Yeah, you are associated with this yeah. regime after all. Yeah, maybe it's just something you could mention to him in passing. Jack Pitbrook of The Independent has already talked to us about the victory ultimately for Arsenal yesterday, Jack. But uh, did this game highlight the difference between a rich club like Arsenal and a not-so-wealthy one like Leicester? A tight game. Arsenal can find a £16 million international striker down the back of the sofa or wherever and he can come on and score a goal. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. And also, don't forget that the game changed because Leicester had to take off Riyad Mahrez and bring on Marcin Vasilevsky, which is not exactly like-for-like. Um, Wasilewski looks like a bit of a pub player and he gave away the free kick from which Arsenal scored the winner but you know Manchester City had a great financial advantage over Leicester City last Saturday and they lost 3-1 so I think the what turned the game was that red card I think more than the financial imbalance not least because had it stayed 11 against 11 and Ranieri said this in the press conference afterwards I think Leicester were going to score another goal on the break well, and then they would have won 2-0 and it would have been a, a huge a huge occasion. You say 
Leicester had to take off Riyad Maris, but they had to do no such thing. Um, that was Claudio Ranieri's decision, and it was a terrible decision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, looking back on it, if he could have taken off all Brighton because Mares, you know, without Mares, they lost a lot of that throughout the break. And I wonder if Ranieri, I mean, Ranieri said afterwards he was angry because he did that. He didn't say it was his mistake, although I think it's not unfair to read into read into his comments the fact that it was probably the wrong move. Uh, but even it was, it was even a... then, even with Vardy up against Mertesack and Callum Chambers in the last like 20 minutes, Vardy nearly got in behind two or three times to put less than 2-1 up. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, I think it was a performance which, despite the result, lots of positives for Leicester, positives for Arsenal, a few, but pretty unconvincing. Well, I, I just thought, I couldn't get over it when I saw it. I thought, I can't believe this. Claire Ranieri, in this huge match, uh, you know, a, a title-deciding match, potentially, is taking off his best player. I, it's it's bizarre. It was like, I yeah, mean, but it, it is the standard way. You know, this is usually take off your to, best player. Well, you often take off you, your most your luxury player again, your most skillful player who, uh, who mightn't be as as defensively solid as some of the other guys in that area of the field. Yeah, I mean that's the problem, isn't it, with the way a lot of managers think? I mean, it was such a typical typical sort of Italian manager. This is obviously in the first year at Coverciano. They say what to do if you get sent off. <laughs> Find the Roberto Baggio player in your team and take him off but it, it was it was just completely the wrong move I mean I, I don't know if it changed the atmosphere in the stadium it certainly seemed to change the atmosphere inside Nacho Monreal's he- head from what I could see Jack because it looked as though he was about to have a nervous breakdown and then suddenly he realised that his tormentor <laughs> who had just got a, a what should have been a penalty off him a couple of minutes before was not going to play any further part in the game You're right I mean Le- Le- Leicester are a slightly different team without Mahrez um, they're slower they are less they're less dangerous, they're less imaginative, and um, it, yeah, it was certainly the wrong, the wrong mistake, the wrong decision by Ranieri in retrospect. Was it a case of uh, almost? It's you know, and, and okay, it's maybe it's a bit harsh to criticise Ranieri too much, given that his team somehow are still top of the league, um, you know, and that that has to go down definitely in the credit column for him. But almost of, of him thinking, well, we are the small team here. You know, this would be a good result. Even a draw would be a good result. Let's let's batten down the hatches and cling on for a point. It was kind of a, it was kind of small club thinking. Even though he's now the league leading club, he, he, it was like he, he was kind of reverting to type, failing to adapt it to the new reality that Leicester are in. Maybe, or maybe it was Arsenal aren't good enough to score past us, so we don't need another goal. I mean, Arsenal weren't playing that. Arsenal were pretty poor for the first hour, really until Walcott came on. And I mean, I don't know what Ranieri was thinking, but it's quite possible that he was thinking that we've got the, we've got the goal. We've only got 30 minutes to see it out. Let's get on Vasilevsky and try and shut the game down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Arsenal, I think Arsenal Wenger talked afterwards about the mental strength that they displayed. Did you get, get a sense of mental strength? And I got a sense of panic uh, from Arsenal for, for definitely the first hour of the game, you know, that, that it didn't, uh, it wasn't exactly the, the dominant performance of a team that's ready to stride on and, and take the league title. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought Arsenal were really unconvincing. It reminded me a bit of when they drew one all with Tottenham at home in November, where Arsenal were poor and let Spurs dominate them basically for the first hour and then got out of jail when Kieran Gibbs scored a late equaliser to make it one all. It was a bit like that. Like Arsenal didn't take the initiative. They were poor in midfield, as they've been ever since 
because all got injured really, and maybe arguably for longer than that. They were a bit blunt up front because Olivier Giroud <clears throat> isn't good enough really for a team that wants to win the Premier League. And they were, they just weren't really in it for the first hour. I thought they were a bit off the pace. They didn't really have many ideas. And then as the game went on, they got panickier. They were snatching at shots. You could see Alexis Sanchez trying to calm the rest of his teammates down. He was probably the worst defender. And, I mean, I know they won the game and that's great. And it's fantastic they can bring on good players off the bench. And they did, you know, they did do well to get over the line. But there were, I think it's a kind of more questions than answers game really for Arsenal. I, I guess it's, you can see the logic behind Wenger praising their mental belief though because I mean that's exactly what we all assume they don't have and maybe some of the players don't believe themselves they don't have it do you reckon he's, he's communicating to his players through his post-match interviews there or maybe even trying to convince himself that his team does have the mental strength yeah quite possibly I mean Wenger was remarkably forthright afterwards when he said that if they'd lost the game eight point the eight point gap to Leicester would have been too much and he said that his players were in a state of shock at half time having gone in one nil down and, I mean, it's kind of proper doomsday scenario. And so, in a, in a sense, the fact that they managing to avoid that is in itself a really good thing and suggests that there is perhaps a bit more, more resilience to this team than, <clears throat> than people might have given them credit for. I mean, it's not... It's very... It's, I mean, Manchester City showed last Saturday, as other teams have shown this season, it's very easy to collapse and panic against Leicester City. Leicester City have this capacity to make good possession teams lose their minds a bit. And... Arsenal, Arsenal managed to just at the last second avoid that trap. If you were a lesser player today, going on your late season holiday, that apparently Claudio Neri is granting the players, giving them a week off, would you be still feeling pretty good about yourself if you take the two games as a whole? Obviously, they lost that game yesterday, and they they might feel injustice at the sending off, albeit some other decisions probably went their way, but. You're looking at this thinking, well, between ourselves and Tottenham, we've pretty much knocked Man City out of the title race, which is not a bad result over those two games, and we're still top of the league. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly as a neutral observer, you'd say that over the course of those two games, Leicester got far, far more right than they got wrong. Like, they played perfectly against City. They played perfectly against Arsenal for an hour. Uh, I thought everyone except for Simpson and obviously Vasilevsky were pretty perfect yesterday. Um so a lot more right than wrong, although obviously, you know, football being what it is, the f- losing with the last kick of the game to a team, to your closest rival who you should have beaten is such a sickener. I mean, I don't know how they, I, I don't know how they'll be able to react to it, how, if they'll be able to get out of their minds, what it means for the next two games, which are Norwich and West Brom at home, which are very, very different propositions. But certainly, I mean... There is very little you can question about the level of performance apart from the red card itself. Yeah, listen, we'll leave it there. Jack Pitbrook, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Mel. Yes, lads. City dog out his ultimate mother will. You're a wee mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Boots here in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. Listen to fans. Just need to fucking work on it. You are nothing. You are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grip. Yeah.
your biggest fool in Manchester. Is it possible that Leicester City can can harbour a sense of grievance? They were certainly annoyed with the setting off, although we have touched on a few of the decisions between the top of the show and that chat with Jack there. Yeah. And in fairness, they could possibly have had two players sent off after... Um, after who did get sent off again? Simpson. After Simpson got sent off, drink water, yeah. and um, and that last foul at the end for the for, for the free was probably punished sufficiently enough yeah. with the goal, but it was a bit of a crazy. I don't know what you'd even describe it as, but it was uh, there's a possibility there that he could have been dealt with a bit more harshly. No, I thought I thought the ref was it was okay ultimately. I mean, the a lot of decisions to make more so than it seemed an inordinate amount of close calls. I think yeah, I mean the. He did. There was a penalty that he could have given to Arsenal, didn't. A penalty that he mightn't have given to Leicester, but did. And a penalty that he should have given to Leicester and didn't. So, overall, it probably worked out fairly enough. Leicester got a penalty. One penalty. Arsenal didn't get any. Um, you know, fairness. Fairness, Owen, I guess it's, that's what it comes down to. Speaking of fairness, one of our... Um what what's what's this guy's name? Gordon Sawyers. Sawyers. You'll be familiar with his work if you listen to our angry fan audio bed. This is his most recent effort. Fucking this up now! Ah! Ah! You fucking bastard! Ah! Yeah, there you go. Can you impressed? <sighs> it's just, just hamming it up a bit there, isn't he? You think? I think he's hunting for hunting for likes. Hunting for affirmation from the from the world out there, you know. Dude, but this is uh, now a major part of the the football experience, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would I would say that all, of all of these guys, these fans, they might all have had one moment, you yeah. know, where they bottled the the magic. One true know? one true moment of yeah. authentic expression, F- followed by many months of ham fisted attempts at. Recreating it, yeah, a, it's, a, it's, a, an actual real emotion captured. See, they've the lost, the, they've lost their innocence. You know, once they see themselves on screen, suddenly with you know seventy-five uh, thousand views uh, and four thousand likes on YouTube or whatever, suddenly it's it's like you know eating the forbidden fruit. Mm. Suddenly they they're they're no longer innocent, and it's like oh, it all becomes about gaming the system. This seems to be what people like, you know. Bl- uh, a blood curdling roar, inchoate rage. That kind of thing is difficult to pull off. You know, that's why we have you know Oscars and so on. To tell me people when, who really can do it. Tell me when you're on Twitter or whatever, you see a new Andy Tate interview has popped up. Do you immediately say, "Oh no, here's Andy Tate. He's he's, he's not going to succeed in bottling up that great moment that he had two seasons ago." I'm not going to watch this. Or do you say, "I'm going to see what Andy Tate says"? Again. No, I feel like I'm watching it now. I'm I'm watching his development into this other kind of a. Th- in, into this other kind of a thing. I'm not watching it thinking... I, well, here's I, a disgruntled uh, Man United fan. But you're watching no, it. I, I'm not watching it thinking I'm gonna. I'm now going to be amused by, by the authentic expression of rage that Andy Tate is going to deliver here. Like, as as with his most his most famous, his breakthrough performance, you are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. You got the job in a technicality. Yeah. That's the one. Uh, now that was that was the real thing. I mean, that was amazing. You know how many times I I definitely watched that more. I watched that many times. That's like uh, you know the Godfather Part Two. Mm. You know you'd watch that. You'd watch it and each time. You might see something different. And it's the same with it. I still think my favorite thing about it is his look to camera just as he just before he whirls away and, and leaves the scene altogether. But there's something. There's such rage in that look. That that's worth watching again and again. That tells you something about the human condition, Owen. But it's I mean, it, yeah. you know, like. We we shouldn't hold these guys to a higher standard. I mean, Hollywood has never made a good comedy sequel to my 
to my knowledge, I, the, I, 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 I said I'm going to think about this. The Evil Dead 2 is about, and I mean, The Evil Dead, it's a, it's a horror. Yeah. You wouldn't even call it a horror spoof. The, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't count. Hot Shot, Hot Shots Part 2? <laughs> part 2, Murph. Part 2. Duh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, why do we watch? Why do why do we continue to watch this to see to trace the development of this character now into this more knowing, more kind of more snide and manipulative uh, character who's actually whipping up the audience now? You know, he's sort of he's he's glancing around to the audience uh, and sort of he knows he's playing them now. He's he's become a kind of a. a I mean, I'm fucking raging. Uh, see, that's real. That's what we heard earlier. Not real. Not real. Not real anymore. He's now this kind of sly street corner demagogue. Which Andy, which one? Andy Tate. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And he's uh, and, and I'm interested to see where it's where it's going to end up. You know what I mean? Where where that's going to go on so, a, on MUTV. At least he's still giving us a reason to watch. Killy fan is going to have to is going to have to work hard. I mean, he, all his videos have been in the in the actual just his like his bedroom. Yeah, so. he needs to get a live audience. He needs to add that element. That's, yeah. That's, that's got to be the next step. Because if, if you see Andy Tate now is adding stagecraft, you know what I mean? And him and the guy who, who is always interviewing him, they kind of are, are now pacing around a bit like prize fighters in the, <laughs> yeah. in the dressing room. Yeah. You know, before, and you know, thinking of like, like of the next great thing to say. And you can kind of watch this monstrous thing begin to form and <laughs> take shape. And that in itself gives you something to cling on to. A quick reminder about a big, big interview we have coming up on the podcast this month. Champions League match winner with Ajax Slayer of Ireland's hopes of qualifying for Euro 96. And recently assistant coach with Louis van Gaal the World Cup. Patrick Clivert is going to sit down with us about to talk about an incredible career. That's going to take place on the morning of the Arsenal-Barcelona game, which isn't far away now. That's February 23rd. It's going to take place in Dublin in a uh, location to be revealed, a secret location. If you want to be there, just email Clivert at secondcaptains.com. We don't have many spaces here, but we do have, we have 20, so we'll have 10 and 10 plus ones. So email Clivert at secondcaptains.com. Give us a question that you'd like to pose to Patrick and also let us know your own greatest Champions League team of all time and why. We talked a bit about this on the podcast last week, the great Champions League teams. So uh, do all that. Or if you want a bit more clarification, you can get on to secondcaptains.com and all the details are there. The most deflating defeat of Joe Schmidt's reign as Ireland coach. I think it's fair to call the game against France on Saturday uh, to describe it thus. So we're going to chat about that with Shane Horgan and Shane Jennings in our second podcast of today. Thanks very much, um, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you later. How is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. 
A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.